there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. After five weeks stranded in the Yukon wilderness, Helen Claben was down to the dregs of her reading material. She searched through what was left in her suitcase. Nancy Drew? That would do for a while. The Communist Manifesto. She read three chapters, and that was enough for one day. Then she turned her attention to the Bible. The Book of Job really resonated with her at that moment. Finally, she landed on a book of poetry by Robert W. Service, often called the Bard of the Yukon. It was almost humorously on the nose. Helen flipped through and fixated on a passage from the poem, The Parson's Son. I'm one of the Arctic Brotherhood. I'm an old time pioneer. I came with the first. Oh God, how I've cursed this Yukon, but still I'm here. Look at my eyes, been snowblind twice. Look where my foot's half gone. And that gruesome scar on my left cheek where the frost fiend bit to the bone. Helen's stomach turned as she thought of her own foot, half gone from frostbite. It brought her an odd comfort, knowing she was at least in better shape than the man in the poem. But when she got to the final stanza of the poem, The Law of the Yukon, it put a lump in her throat. This is the law of the Yukon, that only the strong shall thrive, that surely the weak shall perish, and only the fit survive. Dissolute, damned, and despairful, crippled and palsied and slain, this is the will of the Yukon, lo, how she makes it plain. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our second episode on Helen Claben and Ralph Flores, whose plane crashed in the Yukon Forest in 1963. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. On February 4th, 1963, a small, single-engine plane nosedived into the Canadian Yukon Forest. On board were Ralph Flores, a 42-year-old electrician, born-again Mormon, and amateur pilot, and Helen Claben, a 21-year-old Brooklyn girl with a thirst for adventure. They'd only known each other for three days, and now they were stranded together for what might be the rest of their short lives. The search parties flying overhead gave up after a few days. They ran out of food after nine days. They were surviving on nothing but toothpaste and empty hope. Their injuries, broken feet for Helen and broken ribs for Ralph, never started to heal. But even after five weeks in the wilderness, they soldiered on without complaint, praying that help would arrive eventually. This was actually good for their survival. Giving up or losing the will to live isn't just a matter of motivation. It can actually lead to what researchers call psychogenic death, death caused by psychological factors instead of physical stimuli. In 1991, a military aircraft crashed near Alert Canada, deep within the Arctic Circle. Five of its 18 passengers died before rescuers arrived four days later. Two of those five were completely uninjured and had access to water. When cognitive psychologist Dr. John Leach interviewed the survivors, no one could explain why those two had died. Leach hypothesized that, under extreme stress, cognitive processes can shut down and trigger the biological processes of death prematurely. Helen and Ralph avoided this fate by holding on to their hope. But as the days dragged on, it was harder to stay optimistic. Ralph believed they wouldn't be rescued until Helen, who was Jewish, accepted the Lord Jesus into her heart. More importantly, he knew they'd never be rescued if they stayed where they were. The tree cover was too dense for any pilots to see them. Their only hope was to set out and find a clearing where they could stage an SOS sign. The only problem was how. The snow was knee-deep. Helen couldn't walk at all. And after three weeks without food, Ralph was losing strength. The solution was simple. A tool that had been used by the Yukon's indigenous peoples for centuries. Snowshoes. By redistributing a person's body weight over a larger surface area, snowshoes put less pressure on the snow's surface than a regular-sized shoe. This allows the wearer's feet to float on top of the snow instead of sinking through. Traditionally, snowshoes were made from long oval wooden frames covered with thin rawhide netting, which prevents them from accumulating snow. Ralph Flores, however, had to improvise, bending stray twigs and branches into a horseshoe-shaped latticework pattern. Ralph's many attempts to craft rabbit traps out of makeshift materials had failed spectacularly. But snowshoes, he thought, he could figure out. As February turned to March, he mocked up design after design, all totally useless. But each new model was a little closer to functional. 
Helen watched his progress with apprehension. Logically, she knew setting off to look for help was the only solution, but emotionally, she was afraid of being left alone in the wilderness while Ralph was gone. At this point, Helen felt her moods were entirely dictated by the weather. On sunny days, she was hopeful. On gloomy days, she had no motivation to do anything. When a snowstorm hit, it felt like they were just waiting around to die. One stormy day, Helen and Ralph were huddled inside the plane where they'd set up their makeshift home. The freezing wind whipped through the holes in the windows. Even curled up under layers of blankets, the cold was unbearable. All Helen wanted to do was go to sleep. Ralph always nudged her awake. He told her they needed to stick to a routine. Napping during the day made it harder to sleep at night. This was important for a few reasons. Most obviously, without electricity, not much work can be done after dark. And on a psychological level, sticking to a routine and keeping their circadian rhythms in order would help them stay mentally alert. But today, staying awake was the last thing Helen wanted to do. She couldn't stop thinking about her family back in Brooklyn. Her mother had no way of knowing if she was even alive. She began to pray, out loud, for God to give her family hope. Ralph quipped, God is not listening to you because you do not pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Helen had been biting her tongue for weeks while Ralph tried to convert her. But today, she reached her limit. She snapped back. He does too hear me. He's heard me for the last 21 years. Why do you think he doesn't hear me now? Ralph fell silent. Without a word, he put on his parka and climbed outside. Alone in the plane, Helen curled up under her blankets and cried. This was the first and only fight Helen and Ralph had during their time in the Yukon. When Ralph came back, neither of them mentioned it again. They both knew cooperation was the only way they'd survive. When the snow let up the next morning, Ralph quietly went back to his daily work, chopping wood, boiling down snow for drinking water, perfecting his snowshoe designs. And in the silence, he heard something. A tinny metal buzz, machinery, a sign of civilization. Helen thought the sound was so faint it had to be at least 50 miles away. But Ralph disagreed. He estimated that it was 20 or 30 miles away at the most. A difficult journey, but doable, if he had snowshoes. And the very next day, Ralph's newest snowshoe model was finished. He tried them on and they actually worked. It was time to set out. Ralph's plan was to travel in the direction of the noise, which he assumed was some sort of mill or electric saw. Along the way, he'd search for a highway to flag down a passing motorist, or if that failed, a clearing where he could lay out a bigger SOS sign. All he needed was a sleeping bag if he was going to camp out on the snowy ground. He asked Helen to sew one up. Helen had very little sewing experience, and Ralph's old-fashioned ideas about gender roles were really starting to grate on her. But since her broken feet made her mostly immobile, sewing was the least she could do to help. She stripped some fabric and padding from the inside of the plane's walls and did the best she could. Meanwhile, 
Ralph gathered up a pile of firewood and a few empty oil cans full of drinking water to keep Helen going. He told her he'd only be gone for six days at the most. If he couldn't find anything by then, he'd come back. On the morning of March 7th, four and a half weeks after the crash, Ralph was ready to go. He grabbed his compass and spear, gathered up the sleeping bag, and put on his snowshoes. He took one step and sunk directly into the snow. His makeshift snowshoes were sturdy enough to hold up his body weight, which at this point had dropped to around 121 pounds from his original 178. But the sleeping bag, made of thick plane insulation, made his weight too heavy for the fragile shoes to support. Instead, he left the sleeping bag with Helen and took one of her coats to use as a blanket. Now it was really time to go. Ralph told Helen that if rescuers found her first, she should tell them to follow his tracks. Her stomach tightened as she realized he was afraid she'd forget about him. Helen assured him she wouldn't leave him behind. She turned to him and said, God be with you. Be very careful. And off he went. As Ralph disappeared into the forest, they called out each other's names. She heard the distant, Helen, growing fainter and fainter. She kept calling out, Ralph, long after she stopped hearing a reply. And then she was all alone. As the sky darkened that night, Helen suddenly remembered she was afraid of the dark. Coming up, we'll follow Ralph into the unknown. Now back to the story. By March 8, 1963, Helen Claben and Ralph Flores had been stranded in the Yukon for over a month. For all their personality differences, Ralph's presence had been a comfort to Helen. He was confident, assured, fatherly. Now that he was gone, Helen was alone to face her only irrational fear, the dark. Every sound made her jump. Wild animals could be just outside, waiting to pounce. With her broken feet, she wouldn't even be able to run. Helen wrapped herself tight in her new sleeping bag. It was warmer than any of her other blankets. The warmth made her feel safe. She pushed away thoughts of rabid animals prowling through the forest and prayed for rescue, for her family, and more than anything, for Ralph. After hours of slow progress through the snow-covered hills, Ralph had only made it what he guessed was two miles. In reality, he had actually traveled less than three-quarters of a mile. At this rate, he had to accept that he'd never make it to the source of that buzzing noise he'd heard in the distance. The best course of action was to find a clearing, lay out an SOS sign to get the attention of passing pilots, and wait for someone to fly overhead. Ralph eventually noticed that the trees he was passing through were blackened and charred. There must have been a forest fire. And if the fire singed these trees, it must mean that somewhere nearby, there was a clearing. Ralph finally broke out into a flat, empty space with clear views of the evening sky. It was paradise. Ralph was so happy, he actually burst into song. He figured this would be a good place to set up a new camp. 
It was close enough to the plane that he could make it back to grab Helen, and they had a much better chance of flagging down help without the dense tree cover overhead. His entire body ached from the long trek, but he immediately set to work building a shelter out of fallen branches. As soon as he was done, he would head back for Helen. That is, if they hadn't already been rescued by then. Helen was hoping that rescue would come sooner rather than later. The next morning was colder than she could remember it being in weeks. In fact, it was around negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's without accounting for wind chill. According to the National Weather Service, at negative 40 degrees, with even a gentle 5-mile-per-hour breeze, the wind chill feels as low as negative 57 degrees. At these temperatures, frostbite can occur in just 10 minutes. Helen's toes were already frostbitten beyond hope. When she changed the bandages on her feet, a smell like rotting meat filled the plain. The toes on her right foot were black and shriveled. She could see the bone pressing against the deteriorating skin. She figured the throbbing, shooting pain in her feet meant blood was still circulating and her toes weren't completely dead. This, unfortunately, wasn't quite correct. Pain can still occur even in the final stages of frostbite. Hard black skin is typically a sure sign the affected tissue is already dead. Helen didn't see the point in worrying about things she couldn't change. She rewrapped her feet and dismissed the blackened toes as a minor inconvenience. It was the rest of her body she was worried about. Even under the sleeping bag, her legs ached from the cold. It suddenly struck her. Ralph was gone. She could borrow a pair of his thick, heavy pants. That meant getting out of the plane. She forced herself out of the warm little cocoon and climbed out into the cold to the two trunks Ralph had placed just outside. She tried to open the one where he kept his clothes. It was locked. She didn't know what was in the other one, but she tried it too, just in case. It opened. She looked inside. Nothing but stockpiles of religious books. Once again, no use in fighting what can't be changed. Helen climbed back into the plane, curled up, and stayed there for the rest of the day. Helen kept trying to stick to her daily routine of chores. It gave her a sense of structure and helped her keep track of how much time was passing. Her watch had broken during the crash, and on cloudy days, there was no way to judge whether it was 10 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. It was eerie and surreal, especially without another person there to tether her to reality. It wasn't until her first full day alone that Helen realized she'd brought along paper and pens. She could have been keeping a daily log this entire time to keep track of how many days were passing and how she'd been spending her time. Figuring it was better late than never, she started writing a letter to her family either to send them once she was rescued or to leave behind if help never came. She wrote about her time in Fairbanks, Alaska, how she'd decided to travel up to Mexico, how she'd met Ralph. But when it got to the crash, she clammed up. She couldn't make herself right anymore. It sounded like an epitaph. She pushed the paper away, deciding she'd only finish the letter when she was sure death was imminent. 
but thoughts of her family kept rattling around in her mind. Helen had flown all the way across the country to get away from them, but now, right when it was too late, all she wanted was to be back home. Helen had never thought about all the sacrifices her mother had made to support her and her five siblings. She'd never told her how much she appreciated her. Her four older brothers, too. They were all successful, working at jobs they were passionate about. She'd felt so lost and inadequate in comparison. She'd never stopped to tell them how proud she was of them. But the worst was thinking about her younger sister, Linda. Ever since they were kids, Helen had found her annoying, always borrowing her clothes without asking or begging for help with her homework. Helen counted all the times she'd lashed out at her little sister until she realized there were too many to count. She thought maybe if Linda could forgive her for how terrible a sister she'd been, the winds of fate would change and she would be rescued. As the blizzard raged outside, Helen started to pray out loud, Love me, Linda, love me. She hoped that over thousands of miles of frozen wilderness, her sister could feel how much she loved her. On the eighth day after Ralph left, Helen was losing faith that he'd ever come back. He'd said he'd be gone six days at most. Her supply of firewood was dwindling, and she could hardly walk to collect more. If he ever did come back, he'd be happy to know she was still reading the Bible as he'd suggested, and she'd finally made it to the New Testament. She was lying in the plane, reading when she heard it. Something outside, deep in the woods, a voice calling, Helen. As soon as Ralph made it to the plane, she crawled over to hug and kiss him. He was exhausted, frail, but glad to see her too. While he started a fire, he told her about the clearing he'd found, the shelter he'd built. He'd waited there for a while, but he couldn't stop thinking about her back at the plane, alone and defenseless. So he packed up and came back to find her. Ralph's new plan was to make a sort of makeshift toboggan out of the plane's fuselage and drag Helen out to the new campsite, since she could barely walk on her own. They immediately started packing up as many useful materials as they could carry. A big strip of fabric from the plane, a few seat cushions, the sleeping bag, and of course, Helen's makeup and Ralph's shaving kit. They wanted to look presentable when the rescuers arrived. Helen made a sign that said, went two miles downhill, 3-16-63, in case someone happened to find the plane without its passengers. As soon as the sun rose the next morning, they were off. They didn't make it far. The toboggan was too heavy for Ralph to pull with all their essentials and Helen on board. She would have to walk with broken feet and no snowshoes. If Helen kept moving, the momentum was enough to push her along. But any time she stumbled, which was all the time, she got stuck and couldn't move her right foot. Ralph had to come over and help her get it moving again. The fuselage toboggan was less than sturdy, too. It kept tumbling over and spilling their belongings into the snow. It certainly didn't help that Ralph and Helen were both sporting numerous broken bones and hadn't eaten anything in going on five weeks. 
This sort of trek would be difficult enough if they were in perfect health. After a few hours, they'd only made it half a mile. Finally, they reached the top of a steep hill. Once they made it to the bottom, the clearing wasn't far off. Helen looked down the slope. Her legs felt like jelly. And then Ralph told her to get in front of the toboggan and help him guide it down. Helen carefully maneuvered forward and grabbed onto the front of the long metal shell. She took one step and lost her balance. She tumbled all the way to the bottom and landed in a cushion of snow. She lay there, disoriented, and watched Ralph chase the toboggan down the hill. When it reached the bottom, it sunk into a pile of fresh snow. Try as they might, Helen and Ralph couldn't get it back out. At least they were almost there. There was only one more hill to make it over. But without the toboggan, they'd have to carry everything themselves. They loaded up their arms and kept going. The final stretch was the most difficult. When Helen made it to the top of the hill, her body collapsed. She fell into the snow, heaving up bile. Ralph helped her up. They were almost there. After a total of five hours, they finally made it the full three-quarters of a mile to the clearing. Ralph brushed the snow off the little cabin he'd built and started a fire. Almost immediately, they fell asleep. When Helen woke the next morning, Ralph was chopping firewood. His eyes were wild, alert, but not quite lucid. As he worked, he was struck by abdominal spasms that sent him crumbling to the ground. He'd put up a good show of strength, but the exhaustion and starvation was clearly taking its toll. Between swings of the axe, he kept rambling about how they wouldn't be rescued until Helen accepts Christ. Helen didn't say anything. She knew Ralph might not make it much longer. They might as well make the best of the time they had left. He told her about his plan to walk to a frozen pond he'd seen just a short distance away. There was enough space to shovel out a giant SOS in the snow. If their campsite didn't catch a pilot's attention, that definitely would. Helen thought it was a bad idea for him to set off on his own in his current condition, but it was no use arguing. The next morning, Ralph strapped on his snowshoes and Helen was alone once again. She settled back into her routine, reading, daydreaming, and counting the days she'd spent in the tundra. 45, 46, 47. They were long past the original 15 days Ralph had once estimated they'd survive without food. Miraculously, they were both still alive, but they wouldn't stay that way for much longer. By day 48, four days after Ralph had set out for the lake, Helen finally completed her goal of reading the entire Bible. As she turned the last page of the book of Revelation, she felt a strange bit of hope dying inside her. She hadn't really believed God would save them when she finished the Bible, as Ralph had suggested, but it had been nice to dream about. And then she heard it. A plane. Coming up, we'll look at Ralph and Helen's miraculous rescue. Now, back to the story. 
Ralph Flores looked over his handiwork, a giant SOS shoveled into the snow, with an arrow pointing towards the campsite a few miles south. It would definitely catch the eye of any pilots passing through, if only a pilot would pass through. He hadn't heard a plane overhead in weeks. And there it was. After eight days camped out by the frozen pond, he saw something in the sky. He flashed a small mirror he'd brought along, reflecting sunlight to catch the pilot's attention. But... He was hit with another muscle spasm. He hunched over, gritting his teeth through the pain. And when he looked up, the plane was gone, flying south, right toward the clearing where Helen was waiting. She rushed out of the tent and, remembering what Ralph had taught her, dumped pine needles into the campfire, sending up a plume of thick smoke. She waved the piece of canvas she and Ralph were using as a tent, stretching it out to reveal their plane's identification number. Miraculously, the plane overhead changed direction and circled back around. Helen fell to the ground weeping. The plane's wings rotated back and forth, a sign the pilot had seen her. After 48 days, Ralph and Helen had been found. The pilot, Chuck Hamilton, had noticed both Ralph and Helen. He assumed they were trappers who'd run low on supplies, a common sight in the Yukon. But then he noticed the number painted on the canvas, N5886, the same plane that had gone down 48 days ago. The search effort had been called off after two weeks. No one thought Helen and Ralph could still be alive. But here they were. Hamilton reached for his radio. He announced, in shock, I think I found the lost people. He immediately flew to the closest landing point, a trapper's lodge just 10 miles north, the source of that mysterious buzzsaw noise Ralph had heard weeks earlier. The sky was already darkening, so Chuck would have to wait till morning to fly back for the woman in the clearing. But he told the trappers that if they hurried, they might be able to reach the man on the pond before nightfall. They readied their dog sleds and raced into the forest. As night fell, Ralph heard a muffled noise in the distance. A sled, dogs, people. He called for help, but they'd stop somewhere far off in the trees. The snow cover was so thick, the trappers had to leave the sled behind and walk to him on snowshoes. They were coming, just slowly. Too slowly. The last light of dusk was fading. Soon, it would be too dark to see anything. Ralph sat alone in the dark, waiting. It slowly sank in that the trappers had gotten lost somewhere in the trees. They wouldn't be able to find him until morning. When dawn broke the next morning, Helen heard a plane approaching. It swooped low, and the pilot dropped a small package out of the window. It landed in a snowdrift. She scrambled over and opened it up. Two chocolate bars, cigarettes, some gum, and a little note that said, Good morning. There are two other planes on the way. A couple miles away, the trappers finally made it through the trees and found Ralph. 
They brought him some moose meat and a whole loaf of sourdough bread, which he tore into at the speed of light. They rushed him to the dog sled, then back to the cabin. Knowing that rescue was on the way, Helen tried to make herself presentable by cleaning her nails and brushing her hair. It was a lost cause. Then, suddenly, a man on snowshoes came gliding into the clearing. Helen burst into tears. When he got close enough, she hugged and kissed him. He shyly introduced himself as Jack McCallum. Jack had landed his plane about three miles away. Once Chuck Hamilton and a few other rescuers arrived, they had to figure out how to get Helen back to the plane. Chuck said he could easily carry her on his back. This surprised Helen, who didn't realize that her weight had plummeted to barely 100 pounds. Before they set off, Chuck asked her if she was ready. She replied, sure. With a smile, Chuck said, you better be. They've spent over a million and a half dollars looking for you. They flew back to the trapper's cabin, where Ralph was already sitting by the fire, sipping a warm cup of tea. It was March 25th, 1963, 49 days after the crash, and somehow Ralph and Helen had both survived. The next day, the two survivors were whisked off to a hospital in nearby Whitehorse, Canada. Astonished reporters were already gathered to catch a glimpse of the survivors. While the nurses were looking her over, Helen asked if she could call her mother. When she picked up, Helen yelled, Ma, I'm alive. I feel delightful. There are millions of photographers here. The doctors estimated that Helen might have survived a week longer out in the wilderness at most. She'd lost 40 pounds and all five toes on her right foot. Ralph was in even worse shape. He only would have made it about four more days. When Ralph saw his scarred face in the mirror with his fractured jaw and dislodged teeth, he said, my wife will collapse when she sees me. But Helen focused on the positives. When reporters circled around her hospital bed, she punched her arm into the air and cheered, Hey, I'm alive. Showing off her skeletal, newly sponge bath frame, she joked, I suggest this for everyone on a diet. The only thing that bothered her was that her toes needed to be amputated, which meant an extended hospital stay. She was desperate to get home to her family, so she asked the doctors if she could get the toes removed once she was back in New York. They agreed. Helen's older brother, Arthur, agreed to fly out on the next plane to Whitehorse to pick her up. That night, he called and asked what he should bring her. She begged for figs, dates, nuts, cookies, and halva, all her favorite treats from childhood. Ralph, meanwhile, was awaiting the results of a Canadian Department of Transport investigation into the crash. Failure to carry regulation survival gear was punishable by an up to $5,000 fine along with a year in jail. However, it's noted in the Sterling Daily Gazette that a department spokesperson stated that he'd never heard of charges being brought in a case like this. Quote, it is usually felt the pilot has learned a lesson from his experience. In the end, Ralph's license to fly was revoked, 
but he didn't face any additional punishment. When Helen's brother Arthur arrived on March 29th, she was positively giddy to see him. She couldn't stop crying and laughing as she embraced him. Ralph's wife, by chance, flew into Whitehorse on the same flight. She told reporters, I can't explain it in words, but all this time I knew he would be found. I feel strongly that the only thing that saved him was his faith. On their last day together, Helen went to Ralph's room to say goodbye. Helen said she'd go out to California one day to meet Ralph's family, but they both knew it would never really happen. Their 53 days together had been an intense experience, but this chapter of their lives was ready to close. Suddenly, Ralph's face grew serious. He said, quote, remember what you have to do. Helen knew what he meant, accepting Jesus. After nearly two months together, neither of them had really grown to understand the other. She kissed him on the head and said, goodbye, Daddy-O. That was the last time Helen ever saw Ralph Flores. When she arrived home in New York, she was swarmed by reporters, begging to hear how she'd survived or what she'd learned. Initially, she wasn't sure what she'd learned. She still felt like the same old Helen, the girl who jumped from job to job and coast to coast without a plan. But she finally settled on an answer. Surviving in the Yukon had taught her patience. It had taught her that there are some things you simply can't change. Sub-zero temperatures, frostbitten feet, the born-again Mormon constantly pressuring you to convert. She had to accept the circumstances she was in and figure out how to endure them. More than anything, though, Helen felt the crash had taught her to be grateful for what she had. In her own words, quote, I discovered something else I never knew before. I love life. All of a sudden, I see I have a message for the world after all. The message is love. Thanks for listening to Survival. You can find all of ParCast podcasts on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Mandy Bossard and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Survival.